In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. I uh, recently read uh, or reread a beautiful book by Pope Benedict. It's the third volume on his uh, series on Jesus of Nazareth. And the third volume is the smallest one. It's called The Infancy Narratives. And it has a beautiful way of beginning the story of the childhood of Jesus and his birth and and his appearance on earth by beginning by the very end of his life. And he places us at the very end when he stands in front of his uh, accuser, Pontius Pilate. We picture Jesus now, Jesus beaten, bruised, one eye swollen, he is bleeding, he's got the crown of thorns, He's got a dirty rag over him. It's a sad sight for a king. And uh, Pilate is interrogating Jesus. And unexpectedly, Pilate puts this question to the accused. Where are you from? That was the question that was placed to him by his accuser at the very end of his life. And yet, we can start to see an answer right now at the very beginning when we consider how he came into the world. Where are you from? That's what Pilate answered or, or asked. Because Jesus' accusers, like the Pharisees and the high priests, they had called for him to receive the death penalty by dramatically declaring that this Jesus had made himself the Son of God, which was considered a capital uh, offense under the law. And so Pilate, this enlightened judge, who'd already expressed some skepticism with regards to the truth, he could have thought, well, that, you know, so what, Son of God, so what? That, that, that was quite laughable. And yet, by reading that exchange, we sense that Pilate was quite uh, frightened because Jesus, the accused, had, had indicated that he was king. And he said that this kingdom was not of this world. And then... He alluded to the mysterious uh, origins, the mysterious purpose. He said to Pilate, For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Imagine that's why he was born. He was born to be king, born to give witness to the truth for a kingdom that was not of this world. 
He's in this world, but he's the king of a kingdom that's not this world. And we imagine Pilate in front of that bloody Jesus and that very famous line attributed to Pilate that when he had Jesus in front of him, he turned him, placed him in front of the crowd and said that famous Latin phrase, Ecce homo, behold the man. It's kind of like saying, here he is, you can judge him, he is your king, Echomo, behold the man. Because Pilate, while well, he was used to dealing with rebels, revolutionaries, uh, people who opposed themselves uh, to the brutal Roman occupation, he was you know, readily able and used to squashing those rebels by just killing them, just destroying them. And indeed, he must have been very unimpressed by most of those rebel leaders. You know, they were just like, you know, just thugs in his view. But standing in front of Jesus, he could not shake off the mysterious impression that was left in him by this man. That's why he kind of said, Behold, this man. He's different somehow, he's saying. He's different from those who had resisted the Roman domination and uh, fought to restore the original kingdom of Israel. This man is talking about a kingdom that's not of this world. Well, now, the church too says something similar. Not to behold the man, as Pilate said, or Eche Omo, but the church invites us now to behold the child. Like that beautiful Christmas carol that I'm sure you're very familiar with, where we say, What child is this who meant to, to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Like, what child is this? That, it's actually a very ancient English folk song. Literally, I mean, I, I don't know if it's from the 15th century. Who knows what the origin, at least, of the, you know, of the melody, the tune, is apparently from Greensleeves. It's uh, a few simple chords, like way, way back there. And then it was adapted in the 19th century with the verses that we all know and that we like to sing nostalgically every, every Christmas. Because the verses in that beautiful Christmas carol also... <coughs> ask us about Jesus as king. This, this is Christ, the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing, haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. I'm sure you can already remember the tune, which hopefully we'll have a chance in these next days to sing. It's really a beautiful sentiment, eh? to haste, to go with zeal, to go with excitement, to worship that child, to worship that king. Behold, not the man so much, but where the man came from when he was a child. And uh, we have to go that with, uh, you know, with zeal, right? With haste, it says haste, haste to bring him Lord. Like to go with haste means to go with a certain uh, zeal, not to accept any passivity or indifference. 
in our interior life, in the way we really live uh, Christmas this year. And maybe we've already experienced a certain, I don't know, indifference or certain slowdown in our interior life. That's why the, the church goes through this calendar every year. We have, of course, Easter, we have Holy Week, we have, we have Christmas, we have Advent, which is what we're in now. It's all meant to kind of regenerate us and our zeal, our love for God. And now we will celebrate the birth of the child. And you and I should never be able to shake off that mystery that this child supposes for us. Just as Pilate, he couldn't shake off, you know, who is this guy? There's something mysterious about him. I mean, Pilate was a pagan. Pilate didn't believe in all these things. He didn't even, you know, he didn't believe in the truth. But he couldn't shake off the mystery. And you and I, too, as we come to this Christmas, we shouldn't ever shake off the mystery that this child supposes for us. And we experience it somewhat in the nostalgia that the carols uh, provoke in us. You know, when, when, you, you know, when you listen to something of the past, whether it's an old movie or old songs, it provokes in you a nostalgia. It means you'd like to go because... It tells you of something good that was back there that in some way you have lost. That's why they say now that um, Hollywood is actually producing a lot of movies now that, like, that, are, that take place in the 80s and even in the 70s because a lot of the audience has a nostalgia for that time, for the 80s, the 70s, and because they understand that there was something good that they've let go of now. They won't say it that explicitly, but that's something what you know. Something what the the draw of nostalgia is all about, really. And perhaps also because at this time of year, uh, I've I've noticed this that a lot of people get quite lonely at this time of year, maybe because they have difficult family situations and stuff. But and and it is sad for some people. But you and I cannot shake off this mystery. That God is among us. He's with us. The child is close to us. And that child is in need of affection. He's in need of love. We can show the child our love, our faith, our hope. We can show him our affection. Would that this be able to happen during this time of Christmas, expressed also in the way we deal with others, the kindness with which we deal with them, the way we serve them. And, you know, it's beautiful to think that there's such a rich artistic tradition of representations of the child, of the crib scene. You know. uh, at times, uh, the child is shown in a cave, and the old icons, he's, he's in a cave, and, you know, kind of like a rugged-looking world uh, with jagged corners. Sometimes they've added uh, sort of more ap apocryphal stories like the story of the midwives it was a story of uh, two midwives that were helping to bathe the child and they're, they're shown there in these icons where these two midwives they've got the baby Jesus uh, in, a, in a bath of some kind and Mary is relaxing there in the distance but there she has the child too so like he's like duplicated but that's the way they did it right and um, the story is that that one of the midwives uh, kind of like uh, didn't believe and uh, 
and uh, as she as she went to to you know like she didn't believe that the child was was divine but then as she went to cleanse him or something like her hand was withered and the other one told her go look look that is the child and then she believed and then her her hand was somehow uh, healed immediately and uh, in there we also see Joseph of course who's standing or seated just outside the cave looking somewhat uh, doubtful because of the story of you know when he saw Our Lady pregnant and there's even another like uh, tradition that suggested that the devil dressed as a, an old man with a hairy coat uh, came up to him and said look that child do you really think that that is a divine child that is just a human child that you know your wife Mary was unfaithful you know like putting this doubt in his in his mind and Joseph turned to the devil and said, you know, be gone. That's not true. She's the mother of God. You know, that, what was born there is born of the Holy Spirit. And then the devil disappears, you know. And people loved to see those little images, you know, especially of Mary lying in the manger and kind of like in a kind of a little casket. It looks like a casket. It's a manger, but he's tightly wrapped in swaddling clothes. And, and indeed, for centuries, the fathers of the church could not help but comment on each one of these uh, figures in these nativity scenes, or these, well, I guess they were called icons and that. They, they date to the 5th and 6th century you know, and, and earlier. And it, to me, it's amazing to think that some of these fathers like Irenaeus and, and St. Augustine and John Chrysostom, uh, that they all saw those icons that we see today. And they commented, and like, like this child kind of stiffly wrapped in swaddling clothes and these kind of bandages, they seem to prefigure his death. Mm-hmm. That he's like a sacrificial victim, just like the firstborn of the Egyptians mm-hmm. who were killed because the angel passed over, you know, the feast of Passover. But the firstborn of the Israelites were saved because they had been protected by the blood of the lamb that had been placed on their door lintels. And like there's a connection there. The child there in these in these uh, icons looks like he is on a kind of an altar. Saint Augustine said something pretty shocking at first. He said, "The manger is the place where animals find their food." But now, lying in the manger, he who called himself the true bread came down from heaven. The true nourishment that we need in order to be fully ourselves. It's amazing how the fathers made all these connections. The child was in a manger. He couldn't, couldn't they found something else to put him in, you know, some straw, some, some, something else to put him in? No, they put him in a manger, which is the place where animals eat a trough, a thing where you put straw, indeed. And they saw that connection. It's because we too now at Christmas are invited to really receive the bread of life. There's poverty, there's that reference in the gospel about this manger. But actually, the gospel doesn't mention the ass and, and the ox, or the donkey and the ox, it doesn't mention that. But if we take a step back and we see the whole event there of the birth of Christ in the light of the Old Testament, Fathers of the church said, did that right from the beginning. They saw the connection with the 
passage from the prophet Isaiah, who was a prophet in the land of Judah. And he said, the ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people does not understand. So there, there was an image. It's, it's amazing that, they, that just that reference there to the ox and the ass is, is understood through the light of the New Testament now to refer to what was happening there in the manger, in the cave where our Lord was born, that there was an ass. And so, I mean, you, you cannot find any iconographical representation without an ass or, or uh, an ox. It has to be there. You cannot just, you know, you just can't have that. And uh, you combine all those passages and, and you get this very rich uh, and uh, beautiful iconography. They say also the, uh, the ass represents the Jews and the ox represents the Gentiles or vice versa, one of the two, right? And so sometimes you see the ass looking away, sometimes you see the, uh, the ox looking directly. They're always moving in some way, suggesting one is good, one is bad. I don't know, but, uh, you know, they're... So I, like, I had that chance to do this presentation the other day on the nativity scenes and they all show an ass and an ox and they're all doing something different. Sometimes the the ass is completely hidden away and he can't see, you can just see his ears, you know, and he's just trying to, he's trying to get a look at the child, right? And, uh, and the ox is saying, no, look, this is my, I'm doing this, right? So what child is this? Let's see if what, during this Christmas we can really make an act of faith in that child that we're looking at, the Son of God, God made man in that, in that child. We make an act of faith, especially when we consider the passage from tomorrow's Gospel from St. Matthew, which is the very beginning of St. Matthew. If you ever tell somebody to read the Gospel, they're likely to be hit for chapter 1 of St. Matthew is the story of the genealogy of Jesus, right? Uh, it's got all these names, these long list of names, and people go, what is this? You know, they expect to hear the story of Jesus, but they get all these names. And, you know, and uh, it's right here, you know, like, like sometimes, you know, you excitedly tell somebody, you know, hey, dude, you know, like, read, read the gospel, and it'll, it'll be really amazing. And they go, okay, yeah, sure. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of Judah. Judah's brothers. Judah and like, it keeps going, it's going. And then Paris became the father of Hezron. Hezron became the father of Ram. Ram became the father of Aminabab. It just goes on and on. And, you know, and look, there's a whole page. It's just like, you know, it's uh, David became the father of Solomon and, and going on and on. And then the Babylonian exile. And Jaconia became the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel became the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. You know, it's just like all this list of names. But the thing is, uh, in that list, there are shadows and there are lights. That is, there are bad people and there are good people, Right? It's light and dark figures. Successes, good kings, and really bad kings, right? And um, it really shows us when you go through this whole genealogy, I mean, that response to the question of uh, Pilate, where are you from? Where are you from? And that's the whole list. That, that answers like, well, you want to know where I'm from? Well, here you go. <laughs> this is the long list. You know? 
And uh, I mean, naturally, the fathers of the church have analyzed every single name in here, you know. But uh, but it does show the the kind of circuitous path in which you could, you could say the history of salvation goes through, right? It really represents a history of Israel from Abraham onwards as a kind of a kind of a pilgrimage, right? A pilgrimage of people right? with its ups and downs, with its paths, its detours, its good people, its bad people. But it finally arrives, right, in this beautiful, of all beautiful lines. It says, uh, at the end, it says, and, you know, uh, Eliezer became the father of Nathan. Nathan became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Of her was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Of her. I mean, it doesn't say that, that it's of, of Joseph. It, of her. Right? It's that one line that tells us the origin of Jesus Christ. All, you know, all through that circuitous uh, pilgrimage. And leads us finally to the Christ. And with this genealogy, with all these successes and failures, you could say God writes straight even on crooked lines. Or he can write beautiful script even with the leg of a table. Folks try to imagine. Imagine you're writing with the leg of a table, you know. I mean he can do what he wants. And he can do that with our, our life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Because God allows our freedom and yet even in our failures, even in our sins, he can always find new paths for us to love, to begin again, to start over. In other words, you know, Christmas is a time to remember God, like, like He never fails. He never fails. He's got a plan. He's got, things, he's got things in control in our life. And so that genealogy that we'll read tomorrow is like a, a guarantee despite the circuitous nature of our life, of history, of the history of salvation, it's like a guarantee of God's faithfulness. A guarantee that God does not allow us to fail. And in other words, it's an invitation really to, to always direct our lives towards Him ever anew. Towards, to always walk towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, of course we know that in all those people, and there were pilgrims in that genealogy, some of them forgot the goal. And they wanted, in fact, to make themselves the goal. They wanted to make themselves more central. And again and again, God called forth people whose longing for the goal really drove them forward. People who directed their whole lives towards that goal. And really, when we think about it, you know, our whole life has to be directed to that child, ultimately. To Mary, to Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, ultimately. And it's an invitation today for us to see how we can really live this attitude of knowing how to begin again. To know how to have the courage to start over despite our failures, despite our weaknesses, despite I mean, falling flat on our face, I mean, despite our actual sins, our lazinesses, our procrastination, the ways in which we 
really recognize our faults. St. Rosaria used to use that phrase often that we should always begin and begin again in our interior life, to start over, never to let discouragement get the best of us. Because we could say that, that the discouragement is like the ally of the enemy. The enemy wants us to be discouraged. He wants us to be sad. There was one incident in the life of St. Rosaria during the Civil War, Civil War was a terrible, terrible political upheaval in Spain in the 1930s. And, um, well, in 1939, the Civil War now was finally over. And uh, there's a famous picture that shows St. Jose Maria walking into the then residence at that time on uh, what was called number 16, Ferraz Street. And there's a picture of him looking through literally the rubble with two other guys. And they're looking, and the place has been bombed. There's garbage all over the place. And uh, there's dust, there's bits of furniture, there's rocks, there's garbage. It's just a mess. And imagine, I mean, you know, we love Ernstcliffe, we love this center, but imagine if a, an, a bomb had just blown this place, you know. The oratory smashed, you know. The altar, the painting ripped, everything destroyed. There all the work we've done to put into this. But he saw this, and he said, you know, he looked at this. And then, in the rubble, the one thing that survived was a frame of a text from St. John. It's called the Mandatum Novum, the New Commandment. He had that placed in all the study centers, all, all the study rooms, rather, in the libraries where people were studying. And it said that you'd love, by this you'll know, you'll know my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this you will know, you know, who are my disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. That was a text that he wanted us to practically memorize. And that was the only thing that survived in that bombing. And he picked it up. I think the glass must have been broken. I don't know. And he said, let's save this. It was written up. It was a bit tattered and stuff. And when I arrived in Madrid in 1990, I arrived in the Center of Studies there, and uh, two of these young guys had picked me up at the, at the train station. And uh, it's, I don't know how many floors this house had, but it had quite a few floors. And they said to me, well, one of them said to me, we want to show you something. I said, what do you want to show? Come, we show you, we show you, we show you now. I said, yeah. And then they ran up these stairs, and I'm following them up these stairs. And we get, to, I believe it was the sixth or seventh floor. And the guy said, this is the study room. I said, okay. And he said, look, the mandatum novum. And I looked, indeed, on the wall was the mandatum novum, the new commandment that our founder had picked up back in 1939. And they were so like, like, Dude, look at this, right? It survived. And they, they, I don't know, they spoke about it with such enthusiasm. And I still have the vision. And there were all these guys there studying. You know, and and I've, I had to look at the Mandatum Novum. Now, if you can find the Mandatum Novum downstairs, uh, I'll give you a prize, okay? That, that, that you should hopefully have read already. It's not as nice maybe as the Mandatum Novum then. And it's actually easier to get to, get to but... Um, 
it reminds us not just that we have to love one another, but that we have to know how to begin again, to start over, right? To learn to discover the divine grammar in our life. What does that mean? Do not put a period where God has put a comma for us to continue, or a semicolon at least. Especially the way you approach school, the way you approach difficulties, friendships, family life, uh, you know. Let's have a really, well, a more fighting attitude to know how to begin again. Because the church is really saying to us now, Echiomo, behold the man, behold the child. So we can really uh, maybe, maybe live this Christmas in a more unique way, in, the, in a way that is more deeply entrenched in our heart. And next year, we will do it even better than this year. That is, the way we become more pious, more loving, more affectionate in, with those around us. Why? Because we will look at that child, the divine child. What child is this? This is what the church invites us. And, and um, certainly the people at that time, though there was that genealogy with all those lights and darks, right? there was a, a smaller genealogy that was much gray, greater at that time. Zachariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, Mary, Joseph, of course the twelve apostles. Their hearts were very expectant and that way they were able to really recognize eh, the greatness of Jesus and his divinity. Let's ask all that crowd, eh, the good people, especially our Blessed Mother, eh, to help us make this an, a really, yeah, a really renewed time of Christmas to embrace the divinity of the Son of God. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.